Thank you guys for leading us in musical worship. Let's, uh, let's continue to worship, brothers and sisters, um, through the study of God's Word. I want to invite you to turn to that passage, Philippians chapter 2, a passage that is no doubt uh, familiar to many of you. Let's just spend a little time walking through this text and seeing what the Lord would teach us tonight. While you're uh, turning there, I want you to think with me uh, about the kind of hyper-divided age that we live in. It feels like every turn that we are being asked to take sides, aren't we? But not just to, to take sides, to really kind of like embrace and identify with various sides. To the extent that once we, once we find our side, once we find our, our tribe, we need to kind of uh, uh, see everybody on the other side as enemies that must be kind of overcome or conquered or put down. And the worst thing we could possibly do once we, we choose our side is to kind of pull back, back down, uh, to retreat or, you know, worst yet, uh, to be some kind of peacemaker that says, like, can't we all get along? You have to declare yourselves on so many things, don't you? I mean, the great kind of battles and temptations and debates of our age are, are really at stake and we are being forced to kind of say, you've got you've to land somewhere. I mean, who among us have not been faced with the, 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 the gut-wrenching question of LeBron or MJ, Marvel or DC, Duke or UNC? I mean, these are, these are the things that, that everything hinges on, right? No, obviously those are not the big issues of our day, but I don't know that they're any less volatile than the ones that maybe are. We're in election season. Are you Democrat or Republican? Or do you watch CNN or Fox News? Are you mask or no mask? Sounded like, whose, whose side are you on? We are inundated with these, these options and told that we, we have to pick a side. And it's no surprising that when that happens, the, the divisions and the distinctions and the, the dissensions that exist kind of in our culture, they creep into the church. Even though Jesus prayed that his church would, would be one as he and the Father are one, the church of Jesus Christ regularly finds itself kind of assaulted by, by divisions and dissensions that threaten to tear us apart to where we have got to look at one or the other and, and, and pick sides and put the other down. And it shouldn't really surprise us that we face this temp temptation, right? I mean, it's kind of an, a strategy as old as time when it comes to uh, military or politics. Divide and conquer, Right? The best way to kind of take over a new project or a new kind of challenge is to break it down into smaller chunks and then you can take it over. Caesar would do this kind of politically back in the, the Roman Empire. But we do this even with positive things, right? When we're, when we're trying to be more constructive, if you've got a big construction project, what do you do? You've got to go kind of stage by stage. You just got to, all right, let's put this together and then let's put this together and let's put this together and then we can construct it all together. I'm trying to teach my son to read right now. Well, by me, I mean me and my wife and mostly my wife. Uh, but we're trying to teach my son to read. And there's bigger words. And, and what's the best way to, to get at and, and to kind of conquer the bigger word? Well, you, you break it down into smaller sections. And then you can, you can handle it a little bit better. 
And it's helpful for us to remember that we, as the church of Jesus Christ, we have an enemy. And he is no fool. He knows that one of the best things that he can do that as is divide and conquer the church of Jesus Christ. He wants to see the downfall of the church. And so one of the best things, best tools he's got in his toolbox is to create division and dissension. We are torn apart in every way. We are tempted to push away and to see disunity and fracture. Obviously, some of that is coming from the culture, but some of it comes kind of from within, doesn't it? I mean, let's just be honest. Some people are just difficult people. And they're not all kind of out there, are they? I mean, we are some of the difficult people, aren't we? We are sometimes the ones that are hard to put up with, that others have to kind of bear with if they're going to stay unified. Just because someone becomes a Christian or enters and darkens the, door, uh, the, the doors of a church doesn't mean all of a sudden they're boom. They're just really kind of easy and pleasant and kind of everything goes, goes well. That's not how our, our experience has shown it to be. And so as we, as we look at Philippians chapter 2, I think Paul knows the great dangers of disunity that are looming in the church. Sometimes they're, they're pressures from without. Sometimes they're pressures within. And what he wants to do is to to urge the church to maintain at all costs a unity that is faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he presents this, this picture of unity in Philippians chapter 2. And he says that we've got, to, we've got to protect against the disunity that is always a threat. And then we've also got to project out into the world a picture of the God who calls us. See, even as Jesus prayed that the church would be one as he and the Father are one, there's some mysterious connection between the unity of the church and the projection and the picture of God that we are putting out into the world. The world ought to be able to look at the people of God and say, that's what God is like. And one aspect, one important aspect of that testimony is the unity that we have in Christ. We are at great danger of presenting a false gospel to the world as we cave and cater to division within. And so Paul writes, Philippians chapter 2, I want us to look at four aspects of Christian unity in this text. We're going to spend the vast majority of our time in the first four verses, verses 5 through 11. There's just so much there. I want to, I want to cover it, but only uh, in, uh, slightly in, in my last point. We're going to spend the m- most of our time in these, these initial verses. But four aspects of Christian unity in this text. And we'll just go uh, kind of uh, one by one because there's no other way to do it. Uh, w- the first aspect is the motivation that Paul gives us for Christian unity. He gives us in these verses a a particular motivation for Christian unity. In verse 1, he says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, and then he goes on. In this verse, we see that Paul wants to ground the believer's unity explicitly in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The, the, the foundation, the motivation, the securing force of our unity as brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ is the gospel that saved us. 
This verse begins with a so if, and it's kind of implied that each of these calls is uh, if this is true, if this is true, if this is true, if this is true, and he's going to conclude it with be united, right? If, 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 unity. But the if is, is not so much a I wonder if this is true. It's more of a since this is true. Each of these is not a, well, maybe there's encouragement in Christ. And so if you happen to be encouraged in Christ in that particular day, then pursue unity. That's not what he's saying. He's saying because in the gospel we have encouragement in Christ, unity. Because we have comfort from love, because we have participation in the spirit and, and so on. Because all of those things are true and he's beginning to build out a, a, this, this understanding that our unity is grounded in the, the secure, definite things we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Each of these four phrases that he gives kind of show us something of, of the power of the gospel in the Christian life and the effect that it's had, the transforming effect that it has in the life of the believer. Look at, at the first. He says, if there is any encouragement in Christ. Paul knew that the Philippians would be experiencing difficulty and opposition and threats all around, but he also knew that Jesus had said, in this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Because we are united to Christ in the gospel, we have hope and confidence and encouragement in every trial. Jesus says, you're going to face opposition in this world, but don't worry, I have overcome the world. And Paul's circling it back around and saying, if we are in Christ, we are with the one who has overcome the world. And if that's not encouraging to you, I don't, I don't know what else you want. I don't know what other kind of encouragement you want when you're facing trials and temptations to know that the one who has overcome the world, you are, you are united with him by faith. There is great encouragement there for us. He says, if there is any, secondly, any comfort from love. The Christian has infinite comfort at his disposal because of the, the love that is available to him in the gospel. We are recipients of the love of God, and that love is meant to be a great comfort to us in this life. It's for that reason that in Romans chapter 8, Paul could, could in this kind of amazing chapter, he's capping off the, 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 the gospel message as a whole, he, he kind of hits this crescendo and says, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Friend, do you need comfort today? Think about this. There is nothing in existence that can separate you from the love of God. Like the God of the universe has set his love on you. And when he sets his love on someone, it's not just this wishy-washy love that our culture is used to. It's, it is instead a very kind of just settled, just laser-focused love on an individual. He has set his love on you. What is it that you're going through this day? I'm not saying that thing doesn't matter. I'm just saying be comforted. The God of the universe loves you. He loves you and nothing can separate you from, from it or from him. The third thing he says is if there is any participation in the spirit. 
The Christian isn't just saved by God through Christ, but he is indwelt with the Holy Spirit of God to live a life worthy of the God who has saved him. We have in the gospel the presence of God with us through his Spirit. And because of that, because of that participation and joining in God in through his Spirit, we can then pursue unity. That participation that he's referring to is not just us participating with God, but we are together participating in that spirit. If we have participation in the spirit, then we've got participation with one another. If that is true, friends, then he comes back and he wants to say, then be unified. The last of these is, he says, if there is any affection and sympathy, he's speaking to the the transforming power of the gospel in the life of the believer. The gospel, as it takes root in our lives, changes us down to to our very uh, affections, our heart, our soul. It takes root and reorients our, our desires, our affections. And then he says that manifests, that expresses itself in sympathy for one another. The gospel that we have received now reaches down, it changes us from the inside out and that manifests towards one another in sympathy or what you might call love for one another. These are the things that he said, if these things are true, Then he leads in to command us, commend to us, exhort us to live a life of unity together as believers. I want you to see, I want you just to notice that at least these first three have a very particularly Trinitarian framework. It is very similar to the benediction we've been saying for several months in 2 Corinthians 13. 2 Corinthians 13, 14, we'll say it at the end of this service. It says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. It is the very nature of God and the the gospel of this Trinitarian God that Paul is saying, if that gospel is true and if its transforming power is at work in you, then be unified. So the motivation that Paul gives for Christian unity is none other than the gospel itself. He doesn't just give commands and say, stop being disunified, be unified. He gently exhorts them and he reminds them and says, the thing that's going to fuel and motivate and secure your unity, church, in all of the things that are, that are pulling you apart, nothing is going to be able to secure unity as much as the gospel is. They have, they have received, we have received Christ's saving work. We have received God's everlasting love. We have received the Spirit's comforting presence and his transforming power. Now, in light of that, be unified. Why is it important for us to understand this motivation, this foundation, this grounding of our unity? I think the reason it's so important is because even those who are transformed by the gospel are still fallen and still sinful human beings. And we just need to be honest, guys. We are so drawn to ground our unity in so many other things. I mean, we we believe this gospel, right? We can say with Paul, if there is any encouragement of Christ, Paul, of course there's encouragement in Christ. If there's any comfort from love, of course there's comfort from love. If there's participation in the Spirit, of course there is. And yet we still find this pull in our hearts and our lives to ground the unity we share with one another in something other than that gospel, don't we? 
We can find any number of things. I'll list a few. Age, political party affiliation, political positions, skin color, sports teams, life experiences, family size, family background, parenting philosophy, mask wearing, hobbies, preachers. These are the things our hearts gravitate towards so that we can find our people, our tribe, and say, I'm with them. We need to recognize that we are going to find something to unify around. We're going to gravitate towards those things that we want to be unified around. But if we're not careful about making sure the thing that we gravitate towards, the thing that we unify around is the gospel of Jesus Christ, then we will find all of these other competing things and those things cannot produce the true unity that Christ longs for for his church. Only the gospel can produce and preserve true and lasting and God-honoring unity. Only the gospel can guarantee the kind of unity that the Lord desires. But think about it. Think about the hope and the promise there, right? All of these other things, they're wishy-washy. They're unstable. I mean, age, it doesn't stay stable, right? Like it moves. (laughs) Political affiliations, sports teams, These things cannot produce lasting unity in our lives. They cannot ground God-honoring unity among us. The only thing that can produce that is a rigid commitment and celebration and an exaltation in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That says we, we can have encouragement in Christ. We can bask in the love of God. We can share in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. This is what's going to produce the unity that God desires. And so the motivation he gives for us in, these passage, in, the, in this passage is none other than the gospel itself. So let's talk secondly about the nature of this Christian unity. In verse 2 he says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Paul invites the Philippians to complete his joy. In a, in a sense, he's trying to say, basically, justify my labors among you, Philippians. I've been, I've been trying to cultivate this gospel-fueled, God-honoring community among the Philippians, and I need you to bring that to its fruition. I need you to bring that to its fullness. Yes, they've taken the gospel, they've believed the gospel, they've received it, they've been transformed. Now, now Philippians, you need to bring it all the way to completion. Here's how you do that. And he begins to talk about Unity. The gospel is, is kind of incomplete in its transformation if we are disunified among us. Paul finds here a great danger that his labors might be kind of, they might just stop short, just, just short of the goal line. Just short of, of finding their fulfillment if unity among, in the church is not achieved. And so he gives us four phrases that don't speak so much to the how-to of unity, we'll get there in a second, but to the, the what is it? What is it exactly that we're going for? What is the nature of this, this gospel unity? And he says that he wants us to be of the same mind. He wants us to, to think in the same way, to kind of have the same thoughts about, about what matters most. He wants us, secondly, to have the same love to be sharing with one another the love that we have received from God. 
It's something that kind of flows and permeates our relationship. The love that we've received, we now extend it to one another. The third thing he says is that we would be in full, ac- or, sorry, uh, yeah, in full accord. The idea is of here is of being kind of a, a like souled, of, of, of the same soul. We're being, we're being united and knit at the, the very kind of uh, essence of who we are and the things that we value. The fourth is that he tells us to be of, of one mind. This is, has the idea of purpose, what we're going after, what we're chasing after. He wants us to have, to be on the same page about all of those things. It's, it kind of covers the heart, the mind, the will, and taken together, the, the image here is of a, a people who are on the same page about what is most important. They're headed in the same direction. They're committed to one another in love and grounded together in the gospel. When we cross the street at our house, I have to grab my kids' hands. And the phrase is like hurting cats, right? But I think it just should be like hurting three and four-year-olds. Uh, it, it is, it's just not nervous. So we got to grab hands. Okay, everybody else grab another hand or whatever. And it's like, okay, we're going to step out into the street. And immediately we're like jolted to the left. And you're like, no, no, the street, we're going this way. We're not going that way. And so you're trying to get everybody on the same page. And eventually there's this kind of Shaddix unit that's moving across, uh, across the street. And you get to the other side and it's like, we did it. You know, like this just, a, we just accomplished something great. None of our children died. Uh, like that, no cars just kind of came, came at us uh, and, and had to swerve out of the way or anything like that. That is a small accomplishment, but accomplishment nonetheless. Paul wants that except writ large for the church. Hands locked, going in the same direction, unified about the best way to get there. We're thinking about the dangers and looking out together. We're caring for one another. Okay, you've got that side, I've got this side. Let's, let's go together in this mission that God has given us. That is what he's going for when he's talking about unity. Now you might be thinking a kind of objection that goes something like this. That sounds good, but the reality is I'm not on the same page with so-and-so. We don't value the same things. I mean, sure, we, we believe the same gospel, but that's, that's about where it stops. We both believe in Jesus, but we disagree about politics, about pandemics, about ethics, We disagree about the implications of the gospel for certain aspects of our lives. How how can we be unified? If that's what he's talking about here, I'm looking around and I'm saying, I actually don't have unity on on so many things. To which I have two, two responses. The first one is that one of the distinguishing marks of Christian maturity is being able to distinguish between things that are important and what is most important. One of the very tricky things that I'm convinced so many Christians have such a hard time doing is understanding we've got to distinguish between things that really, really matter and the things that matter most. The like-mindedness in view here is not about everything. Right? It's not about sports. It's not about clothes. It's not about preferences. It's not about parenting styles. 
He is not saying you've got to agree, just go all the way down the list and think about everything in the exact same way. He is primarily focused this unity, this like-mindedness, this singularity of purpose built around the gospel itself. It's not trying to raise everything up to the level of the gospel. It's trying to show that the unity that we have in the gospel is more profound and more lasting than any imposter unity that we would all gravitate towards. We have got to understand we will be focused around this gospel. We will be like-minded about this gospel. We will have a unity of purpose around this gospel. We will be like sold about this gospel. The, the, the chore here is not to figure out who the heretic is when it comes to sports teams or color of the carpet or what's the best time for the service on Sunday morning or whatever. That is not what we're trying to figure out. Instead, we're trying to say we're going to make sure we're on the same page about the things that are really most important and let that put everything else into perspective. The second response I would have to that objection, that real objection that we feel, that I don't feel unity on a lot of other things that really do matter. I think it is instructive that Paul does not say, go find people with whom you have unity. He does not say, there are people like you out there, go find them and rally together with them. Rather, he says, this is something you're going to have to work for. This is something you're going to have to labor for. This is a thing you're going to have to put some effort and some energy into. We're not saying take all of just your natural inclinations and then gather and rally around that. He's saying take the gospel and work to build the unity you have around that basic foundation, the thing that is most important. And the question naturally arises, how, how do we do that? And so let's move to the third section here, the, the practice of Christian unity. You see in verse, this in verses three and four, his, his instruction comes really in, in two pairs, and each pair has a principle that's stated negatively and then, and then positively. The first practice has to do with our, our posture or our, our esteem of others, our view of other people. He says that we must humbly prioritize others above ourselves. If we're going to really pursue this kind of gospel unity, we've got to get to the point where we are able to humble ourselves and esteem and prioritize other people as more important than ourselves. That's what he says in verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Instead of, instead of prioritizing self and what I want, these are the things he calls selfish ambition and conceit. Believers should take a posture of humility that puts others first. But listen, it doesn't just put others first. It doesn't just, just have a, a, a kind of a veneer or a facade of just, I'm going to act like you're more important. He does not say, act like others are more important than you are. He says, count them as more important. Esteem them as more important. View them as more important. You know how this unity comes? It doesn't come by just play acting. It comes by actually humbling myself and actually saying that my brother or my sister or even my opponent is more important than I am. It's incredibly hard to do, isn't it? We are, each of us, utterly convinced that we are the most important person in the room. 
That's just the natural kind of pride that comes with, with fallen humanity. We have this kind of underlying sense that the world kind of revolves around us. And Paul tells us here that if we're going to pursue this gospel unity, it's going to require a radical reprioritization of our view. My friend, my brother, my opponent, they are truly more important, more significant than I am. That's the first kind of encouragement practice he wants to get us to is, to, is to kind of change the way we view people. The second thing he wants us to do is to rearrange our, our pursuits, what we're chasing after. Look in verse four. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Rather than simply asking, what is it that I want? What is it that I'm chasing after? Christians can, can, because they're grounded in the gospel, because they're secure in the love of God, because they're unified with Christ, they don't have to sit there and say, I've got to fight for my interests. Instead, they can stop and they can look at their brother, their sister, their opponent and say, what is it that you're chasing after? How can I work for your interests? How can I work for your good and not just my own? If we are going to, in the midst of the very real differences that we've got, I am not saying that all of us all, all of a sudden are just automatically on the same page about everything because we can recite the same gospel creed. I'm saying we're going to have to work for it and the way we're gonna have to work for it is sitting down with a brother or sister, looking them in the eye, fundamentally esteeming them as more important than myself and then say, how can I work for your good? And so many times what we do instead is don't talk to the person, don't listen to what they're saying, lob grenades from social media, and then say, I'm in the right, they need to come to me. That is not gospel unity. That is not the gospel taking root in our lives and in our church. And may it not be so that that is the way that we pursue living out the gospel together. This is a radical practice that is very simple and extremely difficult. Unimaginable instances of marital strife find their root in spouses refusing to consider the other person more significant than myself. Refusing to listen to what they're saying and say, I'm gonna work for your good not just what I want. Unimaginable instances of church division and family drama and small group quarreling, even among brothers and sisters, can trace their origins back to one or more people operating out of a fundamental belief that I am more important and I am going to insist that you care about my interests. We're fine with unity, aren't we? We want it. But instead of that unity being centered around Jesus and the gospel message, it's gotta be centered around me and my message. That's the kind of unity that our flesh craves. Paul knows that we're going to be torn in, in all kinds of different directions. He knows that we're gonna have these, these pressures pulling us apart and, and, and these kind of different competing opinions and preferences that, that are threatening the unity of the church. So he encourages and exhorts us to kind of decenter ourselves and turn our eyes to our brother, our sister, our opponent and to love them. Now, before I move on to the last point, let me just kind of issue a, a warning of sorts. 
We are, most of us, probably fighting a temptation to think something along the lines of of this. I really hope so-and-so is listening to this. I really have a good idea of who needs this message. Hope they caught it. And I just want to propose to you guys that that is perhaps the most dangerous response we could possibly have to this text. Yes, you might find yourself at some point in your life with the opportunity to kind of humbly offer Philippians 2 as something someone ought to consider in your discipleship of another person. But let me just be very clear. If you find yourself using or wanting to use Philippians 2 to coerce someone to come towards you rather than finding Philippians 2 propelling you to go towards that person, you are entirely missing the point. The instruction is not for us to humble others and get them to consider my needs more important than theirs. The instruction is to humble myself and to consider their needs, not only my own. The instruction is not to get others to come to me, it's for me to go to them. As soon as we find ourselves thinking somebody else needs this, that ought to be conviction. What does it look like for me to go to them? And I'm not talking about going to them to confront them, I'm talking about going to them to love them to put their interests first, to esteem them more highly than I esteem myself. And the the, the real trouble here, this is the real kicker, guys. You are often, we are often gonna find ourselves in a position where we do the work to esteem others more important than ourselves. We do the work to put, consider their interests and work for their interests and not only for our own interests and they don't reciprocate. I thought that was the whole point of community, right? I look out for your interests, you look out for my interests, and it works as this kind of, this kind of beautiful, beautiful community, and yes, that is how it's supposed to work. But understand, in this text, what grounds you going and loving your brother and we're moving towards them? It is not your preference, it is not your interest, it is not the reciprocity, it is the gospel. As long as there is encouragement in Christ, as long as there is comfort from love, as long as you have participation with God through his spirit, you go to them. As long as the gospel is true, we drive towards them. We do not ground our, our unity and our moving towards our humility, our esteeming of them as more important than ourselves. We do not ground that in their deservingness or their goodness. We ground it in the faithfulness of God. As long as God is good and good to us, we go to our brother and our sister and we lay our lives down for their sakes. We behold the gospel And we follow Jesus. And if and when our brother or our sister or opponent fails us, we do not take our eyes off of Jesus and put it on our opponent. Instead, we keep gazing at Jesus. And that drives us to the last point. That drives us to what Paul's getting at in Philippians chapter two, verses five through 11. He does not leave us without an example 
He knows he's making a radical request, and it's, but it's not a request. He's pulling out of nowhere, and it's not, it's not just some kind of like piddly example. I mean, I've, I've used the examples of sports teams, and it's really easy just to dismiss that and say, that's no big deal. Obviously, we can overcome sports teams. That's fine. Set that aside. Look to Christ, who is God the Son, right? Like the Son of God chose to not look only to his, his own interests, but to look after yours and to look after mine. Like God the Son came, became incarnate so that he could come and, and, and prioritize us. He didn't, he didn't say, I'm, I'm God the Son, I don't have to worry about these, these creatures. But he esteemed us more important than himself. He didn't say, he didn't give in to what was a very real desire in the garden where he says, where the, the weight and the, the heaviness of divine judgment is being placed on his shoulders and he cries out to the Father and says, I don't want this cup. I don't want this on me, but not my interest, not my will, but yours be done. And you know who benefits from that, brothers? Sisters, you know who benefits from that act of putting others' interests ahead of his own? We do. We are the recipients of this this divine humility as he comes to us and models for us what it looks like to love others even when they will not reciprocate it, even when they do not deserve it. I mean, what amazing grace we have in Christ who came to us he, he owed us nothing, and yet he came to us to rescue us. Chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, it was, it was recorded as this kind of early Christian hymn. This is probably something that the early believers would have, would have sung together or recited to one another as a, as a creed like we, we say here. But here, Paul holds it up primarily as, a, as an example He's saying, I, I know this is a radical call to humility, but, but lest we forget, let's keep in mind Jesus as this model for what it looks like to pursue gospel unity. But not only is he a model, he's also a guarantee of that community. He's a guarantee of the unity that will be born out of the gospel. Check it out. If you look at the very beginning of verse 5, and we're, again, we're not going to walk through all of these verses, but if you look in verse 5, he says, Have this mind among, among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Where is it that we can begin to learn to think like this? We already have it in Christ. The power is available to us in Christ Jesus to pursue this kind of radical gospel unity. We already have, by the Spirit inside of us, everything we need, church, to pursue this kind of radical gospel unity. Think about whatever it is that creates division and dissension between you and your brother, your sister, your enemy. You have in Christ everything you need to love that person, to move towards them, that person. But not only does he give us the power, I love this, he is going to guarantee the outcome. The unity that Paul calls us towards, guys, it will happen. Verse 9 says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that, so that at the name of Jesus every name should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Friends, we will be unified. 
The unity is coming. The question for us is, will we honor the Lord and Savior by now unifying around this gospel and confessing him so that a watching world can see the church and understand this God a little bit better? Or will we substitute him for lesser things and exalt these imposters that that beckon us to unify around these, these lesser things defame his name and wait until he actually brings us all to himself. May it be that IDC and the broader church in this area, the church of Jesus Christ, would have his mind, would have his humility, would have his love, even as the enemy seeks to divide and even as our flesh longs to go astray. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for the example we have in Jesus. Thank you for the promise we have in Christ. That nothing can separate us from your love. You did not spare your own son. You graciously gave him up for us all. There's nothing that's going to take us away from your love and the comfort we have, a fellowship and the spirit that we have because you've promised it. Lord, nothing is gonna take it away. And so because of that, Lord, we cry out for help and ask that you would, especially in this particular season, this particular moment and in our immediate cultural context, that you would protect the unity of the church, that we would not be pulled away by all kinds of things that really are important, but Lord, instead you would fix our eyes on Christ. And that because of the guarantee and the promise we have in the gospel, it would drive us towards our brother, our sister, even our opponent, to love them, to care for them, to esteem them the way you've esteemed us. God, we need your help in this. We confess this goes against everything in our flesh. And so we ask that you would, you would convict us of sin and pride where it's, where it's present, and that you would drive us deeper into a knowledge of your grace for us so that we can extend it to others as well. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.